2003, January 30th, Lecture 18 on Supernovae, first lecture of Unit 3. We'll begin in just a moment. Let's go. Today we're going to be starting the third unit of this course. We finished talking about stellar evolution. We're now going to switch into a slightly different topic, what happens after a star has gone through its evolutionary cycle. It's a unit I call Death and Transfiguration, the endpoints of stellar evolution. Stars really don't, except in very rare circumstances, vanish at the end of their life. They leave remnants behind. But we want to pick up on this by finishing the story we were telling on Friday. We're going to talk today about what happens to that massive star when it runs out of nuclear fuel at the very end, as we saw last time. Today's lecture is on supernovae. The key ideas of today's class are as follows. The end of the life of a massive star is basically the life cycle is was it burns hydrogen all the way up through silicon, leading finally to the formation of a massive iron core. It's actually iron nickel, but we'll call it the iron core for short. This iron core becomes catastrophically unstable. It collapses and it bounces. In that bounce, we'll see why that bounce occurs, the envelope is explosively blown off the star in a massive explosion we call a supernova, and the remnant core left behind becomes something we're going to meet tomorrow called a neutron star. Now, the reason why this is so important to us is not the celestial fireworks of the explosion so much, which are among the most spectacular phenomena in the entire universe. When they go off, they're the brightest thing in the entire universe, the time they're exploding. But what's more important is, in the fires of this explosion and some of the products of the nuclear fusion that has been going on for all the millennia beforehand gets spread into the interstellar medium in the form of pure metals. This is, in fact, the process of nucleosynthesis. This is the creation of elements that are heavier than hydrogen and helium inside of stars and the return of that material to the interstellar medium explosively through the agency of a supernova. We'll see a little bit about how nucleosynthesis works towards the end of the class. Now, last time on Friday, we walked through the life stages of a massive star, by which we met a star more massive than about eight times the mass of the sun. If a star has a mass of less than four times the mass of the sun, it burns hydrogen in its core, then it's followed by a series of changes where it burns helium, building up a carbon-oxygen core. But the core can never become hot enough for carbon fusion to ignite, and so in a series of events occurring where the envelope becomes unstable to thermal pulsations, the envelope separates the core, peels away, it becomes a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. This is the fate awaiting the sun. In the case of a star between four and eight times the mass of the sun, the core does become hot enough to ignite carbon fusion. It forms an oxygen-neon-magnesium core, but it never gets hot enough before thermal pulsations disrupt its envelope and it forms an oxygen-neon-magnesium white dwarf with a mass of approximately the mass of the sun. And in that case, too, the core and envelope kind of gently go their own way. The outer envelope disappears into space as a bright planetary nebula, and the oxygen-neon-magnesium core evolves into becoming a white dwarf. We'll say more about white dwarfs in tomorrow's lecture. But for masses above eight times the mass of the sun, there's nothing to stop it, stop the star's core from getting successively hot enough to burn the next nuclear fuel available. It starts out by burning hydrogen into helium in a process that lasts approximately 10 million years. It then goes through a rearrangement, becomes a red supergiant, in which now it begins to, at the edge of the red supergiant phase, it gets hot enough in the core to ignite helium burning. 
Helium fusion through the triple alpha process creates carbon and oxygen and can provide the energy of the star for approximately one million years. At the end of that million years, the star begins to evolve backwards again. It reachieves thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium. The carbon-oxygen core collapses until the temperature reaches about 600 million degrees Kelvin and carbon fusion ignites. Carbon fusion is very inefficient. It lasts for a thousand years. After this, a series of events basically occur in which we see a repetition of the cycle. Each fusion phase that it goes through builds up ashes. Those ashes collect in the core. It's not hot enough for those ashes to participate in fusion. So they build up until the core no longer can support itself against gravity. It begins to collapse and heat. And it heats up until the temperature reaches the point that fusion can now ignite for the next available fuel. And it reestablishes, however briefly, hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. Again, burning through, making ashes, ashes build up, and so forth. And it repeats in a cycle. The cycle includes neon fusion into heavier elements, which lasts for approximately 10 years, oxygen burning, which lasts for about a year or so, and finally, silicon burning, which will last for only one day. Each successive heavier nuclear fuel is more and more inefficient. At the end of that silicon burning day, the ashes that are formed are primarily a very large inert core containing mostly iron and nickel. Well, I should call it the iron core for short, but you should imagine that it is, in fact, iron and nickel. We've started up here on the periodic table from hydrogen, and we burned our way all the way up to elements 26 and 28 here on the periodic table, iron and nickel. For each of these fusion that goes from a light element to a heavy element, I get energy out because the mass of the product of fusion is less than the mass of the input materials, and therefore I can extract energy via E equals mc squared. A different way of putting it is I can extract nuclear binding energy. But all of the elements that exist heavier than iron that isn't true anymore. They are less bound because of the larger number of protons and neutrons in their nuclei. And as a consequence, if I tried to, say, fuse two irons together to get an element 52, so I tried to get tellurium out of it, what I would get out of that process is tellurium actually has more mass than two irons. And therefore, in fact, that process would require us to pump additional energy into the system. In other words, fusion is no longer an energy generating fuel, it is an energy sucking fuel, long word, uh, masses above iron and nickel. So the star reaches a nuclear impasse. So at the end of this nuclear burning day, this is what the configuration of the core of the star looks like. The envelope is out at five astronomical units. We're down here roughly the size of the Earth. The iron nickel core in the middle is approximately the mass of the sun, maybe one and a half times the mass of the sun. How much actually determines what its subsequent evolution will be. And it's surrounded by this onion skin structure of different nuclear burning shells. Silicon, then oxygen, then neon, then carbon, then helium, then hydrogen. All of these can just barely make up for the energy needs of the star. Now, as we've been going on before, remember we've said that the basic story of stellar evolution is a star struggling to maintain hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. <coughs> if there was no nuclear fusion, if nuclear fusion just simply could not provide the energy for a star, the star would tap its gravitational potential energy. It's the only energy source it has. We call that the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. But to tap that gravitational energy, the star has to collapse. It has to get into a more tightly gravitationally bound configuration. So it pays a big price for tapping gravitational energy. The analogy I like to think of using for what stars really do is if their temperature gets high enough for them to use fusion, they're essentially borrowing against their ultimate collapse of gravity 
by borrowing against nuclear binding energy. They go out and they spend the nuclear binding energy to keep them from having to collapse, to keep them from having to get more and more gravitationally bound. But as each successive nuclear binding energy tapping source, each successive nuclear fuel is tapped, it's less and less efficient, and the star will be able to do that for less and less time. By the time it forms an iron core, it can no longer tap nuclear binding energy to get its energy. So it now has reached a very dangerous impasse. The core, iron core here that's formed is now too big to support itself against gravity. It's very, very hot. It's about 4.5 billion degrees Kelvin, but it simply cannot hold up. Even at those immense temperatures, cannot produce enough pressure to hold itself up against the crush of gravity, and the core begins to collapse. When the core reaches a mass between about 1.2 and 1.4 times the mass of the sun, the collapse begins and the core begins to heat up. The temperature rises, but unfortunately, no matter how much the temperature rises, fusion is not going to ignite. When the temperature exceeds about 10 billion degrees and the density gets above 10 billion grams per cc, 10 to the 10 grams per cc, two energy-consuming processes kick in. Before, there was always some energy generation process that would come in to save the core. But now, it doesn't seem like there's anything the star can do to save itself. Now, when it gets really hot, two nuclear processes kick in that will actually begin to suck energy, suck heat out of the star, hastening the collapse. The first of these is nuclei, when you get them up to temperatures and densities of tens of billions of degrees Kelvin, actually begin to melt. They begin to what's called photodisintegrate. And all those heavy nuclei you've been working so hard to build up inside that iron-nickel core melt into helium. They melt back down to the last point. They go all the way back down the curve of binding energy. Some of them actually give up large numbers of protons and neutrons in the process. As a consequence, it almost in that last few seconds, and literally the process I'm describing takes seconds, all those thousands of years of nucleosynthesis, nuclear fusion, have been reversed. These protons and electrons at very, very high densities begin to combine. When I take a proton and an electron, their charges neutralize each other, and you become a neutron. But when you make a neutron, you also have to make a neutrino to conserve angular momentum. Well, those neutrinos simply pour out of the inner part of the star, carrying off even more energy. So now the star is trying to get energy, but everything it does requires it to spend even more energy than if it did nothing at all. It causes nuclear photodisintegration, which basically reverses all that nuclear, nuclear fusion, and the process of fusing the, high, the protons and electrons together to form neutrons produces neutrinos, which just carry the energy streaming out of the star. The star is basically, at this point, essentially shining mostly in neutrinos. The starlight is insignificant. What this does is it now basically pulls the bottom out of the core. So before, it was collapsing because there wasn't enough pressure to hold it up against gravity. As it compressed, it heated. But the problem is, now the heat is causing energy loss, so the energy is dropping faster with compression. And that causes the pressure to drop out. And when the pressure drops out, gravity just starts crushing even faster. Gravity's going to win. This start of the process of the iron core collapse is catastrophic. At the beginning of the phase, the iron core is about the size of the Earth. It's about a radius of about 6,000 kilometers. And it starts out at a density of about 100 million grams per cc. That's 100 million times the density of water. One second later, one second after that core collapse begins, 
the radius shrinks from 6,000 kilometers to 50 kilometers. So it's gone from the size of the Earth, the size of Franklin County or the central Ohio. Its density is shot up to 10 to the 14 grams per cc, 100 billion grams per cc. And the edge of the core is collapsing so rapidly that its speed reaches approximately one quarter the speed of light. So the core goes in one, two, from the size of the Earth down to the size of the state of Ohio. It's an extremely rapid catastrophic collapse. Now, at this point, nature changes the rules on the core. Before, it was behaving as if it was more or less a perfect gas, although there's a bit of degeneracy pressure like we met a little bit before. But now the density reaches about 2.4 times 10 to the 14 grams per cc. That turns out to be the density of heavy atomic nuclei. Now, this is actually kind of a special density, because if you think about it, how can you tell, if you imagine you could shrink yourself down to the size of a subatomic particle and fly into an atomic nucleus, what would you see? Well, you'd see the nucleus down in the middle with its protons and neutrons and its big positive charge. You'd see this immense sea of electrons running around it, one electron per proton and a neutral atom. One part in 10 to the 15 of that volume is empty space, threaded by electric magnetic fields, as we saw during the first week. The reason you can tell that you're not outside the nucleus or inside is outside it's pretty much empty. Inside the nucleus it's really dense. There's a density contrast. How can you tell the difference between being in the water and out of the water other than the fact you get wet? Because air has a density of about 10 to the minus 3 grams per cc. Water has a density of 1 gram per cc. There's a 1,000 to 1 density contrast between in the water and not out of the water. Well, what happens if you press the nuclei together so much that the density outside is the same as the density inside? You can't tell the outside from the inside anymore. And what happens is the nuclei simply vanish. The star has basically, to all intents and purposes, this iron-nickel core deep in the middle of the star has become one gigantic 50-kilometer across one-and-a-half solar mass atomic nucleus. The rest of the star envelope is still out there at five astronomical units. It has no clue what's going on down in the middle because it takes however many thousands of years for the light to get out of there. It doesn't know. It's doomed. When you reach the point where the iron core becomes essentially one big atomic nucleus, now the forces involved are not simply electromagnetic repulsion of atomic particles and gravity, but a third force comes into play that normally only comes into play at the nuclear level, the strong nuclear force, the force that binds protons and neutrons together in the nucleus. When the strong nuclear force kicks into play, it's a curious force. Not only can it bind, it can also push apart. So what happens is, in the inner 0.7 solar mass of the core, climbs above what we call nuclear density, the strong nuclear force comes in, Here's this core coming down at a quarter of the speed of light, and the nuclear force suddenly ramps up dramatically and says, stop. Well, you know, it's really hard to stop something moving at a quarter of the speed of light. So the thing comes down, springs down, cocks, and overshoots. The spring is cocked. And when it overshoots, it bounces back. So the Inner core comes in, overshoots, stops with the nuclear force. The nuclear force pushes it out, and it relaxes. 
This all happens in the blink of an eye. The stuff from the rest of the star falling in, before it's just seeing the bottom fall out, it's cruising at a quarter of the speed of light, and all of a sudden it sees a nuclear matter brick wall coming towards it at half the speed of light. When that happens, it blasts a shock wave into the surrounding material. The core goes down, bang, pushes out, rams into the surrounding material. That rams in an immense shock wave which blasts out into the star. The amount of energy in this blast wave is approximately 10 to the 51 ergs. It's approximately the bind gravitational binding energy of the thing that just collapsed from the size of the Earth to the size of Franklin County. Within 25 to 40 milliseconds, there becomes a traffic jam between the stuff suddenly blasting outwards, ramming into the stuff that's trying to get into the core. That stuff moves out until finally that outgoing shock sweeps up its own mass and it stalls. So at this point you think almost nothing's going to happen. Maybe it's going to stall and all start folding back in. But this is not normal material. This is material at just a hair above nuclear density. It's at temperatures of billions of degrees and there's neutrinos pouring out of the core as the protons and electrons that used to be in those nuclei are getting shoved together and forming basically one big mother ball of neutrons. Those neutrinos normally could pass through an entire parsec of lead, virtually untouched, but the density of the material above them is way higher than the density of lead. It's tens to hundreds of millions to hundreds of billions of times the density of water. And in that case, that material looks to those neutrinos like a brick wall. So the neutrinos begin to ram into the stuff and they begin to heat it up. They get trapped. As they get trapped in the dense surrounding and pouring gas, that stuff suddenly begins to, instead of the neutrinos streaming out of the star, carrying away energy, that tremendous amount of energy is trapped in the star. It begins rapidly heating that material. It heats the material faster than that material can conduct the heat away. And so it begins to drive immense, violent turbulence in the outer layers. That immense, violent convection is what's going to, in the next few milliseconds, tear the star apart. So here we see a movie in a supercomputer. These, in fact, are based on codes which originally were used to help design nuclear weapons. We see the core bounce here and the shock moving outwards. It's a sort of a vertically outward moving shock. Red means hot, blue means cool. It runs out and it basically stalls out. This shock is basically stopped barely outside the core. That's at five milliseconds. Ten milliseconds in, the neutrino trapping behind begins to heat the material back here. It can't get rid of that heat, so it begins to boil like water in a pot. Except this is now nuclear material in the core of a star at billions of degrees Kelvin. This immense turbulence begins to transfer energy to the outer layers and eventually within 15 to 20 milliseconds it actually begins to drive energy into the outer envelope. That heat energy now deposited in that outer envelope causes the pressure in that envelope to rise way above what gravity could possibly use to hold it back on and the envelope basically blasts off the star. So the sh original shock from the bounce pauses. 
And one of the scientists who works on this likes to refer to this as the pause that refreshes. In this case, it now begins, the star can now tap the energy from all the neutrinos filing out, and it breaks the traffic jam. After about 300 milliseconds, the shock is regenerated, and it begins to smash its way out through the envelope of the star, moving it faster than the speed of sound. As it moves through the outer material of the star, the material gets to run to extremely high temperatures and densities, and nuclear fusion is ignited explosively in those outer layers. As nuclear fusion and light elements into heavy elements expl ignites explosively, it drives even more energy into the shock. That energy proceeds to drive the shock even faster outwards through the envelope of the star. It heats up the envelope and begins to accelerate it outwards. Within a few hours after this begins, the head of that shock reaches the surface of the star. When it does so, it's moving at approximately one-tenth the speed of light. It's been accelerating and powered out by a combination of, first of all, the tremendous convective heating from the trapped neutrinos, and secondly, from additional energy pumped in by what we refer to as explosive nuclear synthesis. This is nucleosynthesis occurring under conditions where that hydrostatic thermostat that normally keeps the star safe simply doesn't work anymore. And so the envelope essentially blows itself apart. So before shock breakout, I might see, like in this nearby galaxy, this is a place called the Large Magellanic Cloud. It's a satellite galaxy to the Milky Way. It's about 50,000 parsecs away. This little star down here is called Sandalik minus 69202. It's a normal, everyday, boring blue supergiant, except on the morning of February 1987, when it became the brightest thing in the southern sky, called Supernova 1987A. When the shock breaks out at a tenth the speed of light, the star goes from a few thousand times the luminosity of the sun to 10 billion suns in the course of 10 minutes. It'll outshine an entire galaxy filled with billions of stars. We often can detect a supernova explosion halfway across the visible universe before we even see the starlight from its host galaxy. These things are, very briefly, outshine everything in the universe. The outer envelope is simply blasted off. The temperature at the speeds at which this envelope is destroyed is approximately 10,000 kilometers a second. That vastly exceeds the escape speed from the surface of the object, and it simply blasts off into space, expanding and cooling, carrying with it all the products of explosive nucleosynthesis and what pieces of that onion skin of nuclear burning shells it peeled off of the top of that collapsing iron core. The collapsing iron core stays behind. It becomes an object either if it's one set of mass, it can become a neutron star held up by neutron degeneracy pressure. But if its mass gets anywhere above two and a half to three times the mass of the sun, we're not sure exactly where, not even neutron degeneracy pressure can hold it up against gravity. It collapses in upon itself and folds space-time around itself like a cloak and becomes an object called a black hole. We'll meet those in the next couple of days. The core is left behind, the star detonates as a supernova explosion. Now, a supernova brightens up very dramatically. It gets to be 10 billion suns very quickly within a few minutes, but then it very rapidly fades away over the course of a series of months. The fading is very rapid at the beginning, and then follows an almost exponential decline. It kind of gets half as bright every single day. It gets another half again as brighter, and so on. And that should have just keep going down in a straight line, but after a while, after about a thousand days after the outburst, or actually even a little less, 
the pace of the fading begins to slow down a bit, as if there's some extra source of energy involved, keeping it brighter than it would be if it was simply an expanding, cooling ball of hot gas. Well, what's actually is, there is actually a source of energy at play. It turns out to be that it's going to be re gamma rays from radioactive decay of nickel and cobalt. In those final moments of the supernova's explosion, a tremendous amount of cobalt and nickel are made. They're the other two elements that sit up here next to iron at the top of the curve of nuclear binding energy. Much of the nickel and cobalt that's created is radioactive. As it undergoes radioactive decay, it spits out gamma rays. Those gamma rays are trapped by the expanding gases in the envelope and heated up. So the envelope does not cool as fast as if there was no source of energy. The rate of fading is actually a very important measurement for us because how fast it fades is determined by how much energy I pump in. How much energy I can pump in is determined by the yield of nickel from nuclear fusion. So in fact, I can find out just how much nickel has been gone into a supernova of this type by measuring whether the fade out is fast, very little nickel, or very, very slow, made lots and lots of nickel per unit mass of the star. And this allows us to begin the assessment of just how much heavy elements were made in the moments of this explosion. Here's an example from that supernova in 1987 showing you some real data. The data points here are the measurements of brightness up through 2,000 days after the outburst. The supernova is so close, it's one of the few that we can cover for very long. And here you see the decay curves predicted by various and sundry radioactive elements. Cobalt 56, Cobalt 57, Cobalt 60. Those of you who any work in, in medical areas know radioactive cobalt for cobalt testing and ra medical radio is cobalt-60 primarily, titanium-44 and sodium-22. This is just details, but actually it's quite important because this tells us, among other things, the nuclear burning produced 0.069 solar masses of cobalt-56, 0.0033 solar masses of cobalt-57, and 1 ten-thousandth of a solar mass of titanium-44. That's cobalt. But what's more interesting is that other one, titanium. Titanium's this little element right over here. So here is an example of the creation of heavy elements in large quantities through the course of the supernova. Now, supernovae are relatively rare because they come from massive stars, and massive stars are very rare. In the year 1054, the Chinese observed a guest star suddenly appearing in the constellation of Taurus. This was the period of the Song Dynasty in China. It was visible in broad daylight for 23 days, so bright was the supernova. In fact, it actually cast shadows and appears depicted in a number of places. One of the more interesting was a rock drawing in Chaco Canyon. It's a place where the Anasazi people lived in, in the southwestern portion of the United States. It's a very odd glyph of the crescent moon, but a star juxtaposed in front of the crescent moon as if that star was brighter than the crescent moon. The approximate dating of that period brings us roughly to the 10th and 11th century, and therefore it could very well be that the Anasazi also observed the supernova of 1054. During its early outburst, which occurred near crescent moon, it would indeed have been brighter than the crescent moon. In the year 1572, Tycho Brahe discovered a bright supernova in the constellation of Cassiopeia. His failure to measure the parallax of this supernova was what led him along the line to begin his measurements of the motions of the planets to prove his own Tychonic system, which ultimately provided the raw data used by Johannes Kepler to actually crack open the mystery of planetary motions. 
And Johannes Kepler himself became very famous for the dis- not the discovery, but certainly the best systematic observations of a bright supernova that occurred in the year 1604. There were other people who actually, in- including in China, who saw it first, but Kepler described it and also be- wrote a book which made him very famous, getting a bit more attention for his then somewhat radical theories of planetary motion. We can go even further back in history. There are many dozens of supernovae, some of which actually have historical records. The oldest one is is somewhat um, speculative. If we look at the Vela supernova remnant, we can guess, we can basically compute when that supernova may have exploded. It would have been between six and eight thousand BC. Its proximity would have been such that across the plains of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, it would have cast shadows in the early evening. It's very likely that Sumerian legends referring to the day in which the god Ea burst forth in the sky and cast shadows across the plains of Eden may in fact be a racial memory of the explosion of the supernova that would have been the brightest thing in the sky other than the sun for as much as a month. This is what's left of the the supernova of 1054. It's actually an object called the Crab Nebula. This is a beautiful mosaic with the Hubble Space Telescope. This is the exploding debris from that destroyed star. And on the right here is a section of a text from the Song Dynasty describing the appearance of the guest star. The Chinese court astronomers were very quick to point out that this was a very good omen for the Chinese emperor and not a good reason, even though they could not predict it. It was an unpredictable event, which but good things, because if astronomers failed to predict important events, they usually lost their heads. These are pictures of the remnants of both Tycho's supernova of 1572 and Kepler's nova of 1604. This is the exploding debris which is coming off of these objects, looking at now in this case approximately 400 years of expansion of this material. This is the remnant shell that's been blown off. It's being heated up to extremely high temperatures by all the power inside that supernova and even 400 years later, It's still visible, the echoes, if you will, of this supernova are still visible. These pictures are a combination of optical and X-ray radiation. The stuff is so hot, it's primarily emitting at X-ray wavelengths. This gas is still a million degrees Kelvin, if extremely thin. And finally, the Vela supernova remnant. It's in an area. Not surprisingly, it's in a massive star. Massive stars only live a few million years which means they don't move very far from the raw materials, the gas and dust out of which they formed. In this particular case, we we can still see the large cluster of stars, the most massive of which was the birth cloud of the Vela Pulsar, a Vela supernova. It blew up. It left behind its remnant called the Vela Pulsar, and we can still see the shreds of this more than 10,000 years after the explosion took place. Supernovae are exceedingly important to sculpting the interstellar medium and also to seeding it with metals. Supernova 1987A is the nearest supernova that has been observed since the year 1604. In fact, it's the only naked eye supernova that has been visible since the year 1604. Usually this should happen about every once every 50 to 100 years within the Milky Way galaxy. Now, if they happen at the other end of the Milky Way, they could be blocked by all the dust and gas and junk between us and invisible because the light just is so faint because of all the crap it's got to go through. But in this, this case, the supernova wasn't in our Milky Way. It was in a nearby galaxy. It blew up not a not little under uh, 20 years ago. It's coming up on the 20th anniversary here of Supernova 87A on February 23rd. Because it's unusual for a number of reasons, one is that that section of the Large Magellanic Cloud was heavily studied and surveyed. So we actually got to see the star before it blew up. 
We had no inclination into indications that it was going to blow up. It was just, well, just yet another blue supergiant. Remember I said last time, the changes going on in the deep interior have no reflection in the outward appearance of the star because they occur so far inside that by the time word that, oh, by the way, the core's collapsed and you're doomed occurs is the moment that the shock breaks out of the surface. You don't know anything. And this star gave no indication it was weird. It was just sort of a 15 solar mass blue supergiant. And one day, all of a sudden, it was naked eye. We, in addition, what's important about this supernova, as I mentioned that that supernova outburst is powered in part by the immense number of neutrinos that come pouring out of the star. Neutrino detectors in Michigan and Japan saw these neutrinos. They saw a pulse of approximately 7 to 10 neutrinos go through their gigantic detectors just ahead of the appearance of the flash from the supernova. This is an extremely exciting and revolutionary observation because it confirmed the whole neutron, neutrino-powered core bounce theory of supernovae in one shot. And we've so far continued to follow it for the last 15 years. In fact, we followed it now. Actually, I, I can't do math. We followed it for the last, oh, gee, we followed it for the last 19 years. It's a wealth of information on supernova physics. I remember this one really well. I was a graduate student at Santa Cruz in 1987. I was just on the way to, just about a year from finishing up my PhD at that point. And I, I came in early, as was usually my practice, and, and every morning we'd get what's called the astronomical telegrams. In those days, it really was a telegram. Now it's an email. Um, showing you sort of reports of this or that variable star, discovery of a supernova in this or that distant galaxy. And I remember being the first one in, so I pulled the telegram off the top of the fax machine, and, and it said, well, it was a, okay, a fax telegram. Pulled it off, and it said, supernova in the LMC. I thought, Oh, see, that's only 50,000 parsecs away. That, that thing should be naked eye. So I went down with my friend Phil Pinto, and said, who was working on supernova. I said, Phil, there's been a supernova in the LMC. And so we sat there on the blackboard. We're trying to figure out what we're going to see, because the LMC is vis invisible from, from the latitude of the United States. And Phil's thesis advisor, a guy named Stan Woosley, who, who writes the supernova codes that do some of these explosion models, comes by. I, I remember having the telegram in my hand say, Stan, who's a supernova in the LMC? And he ripped the telegram out of my hand and ran to his office, and we didn't see him for about 24 hours. I don't think he slept for a week. Um, it was extremely exciting, because here was one actually going off right at a time when all, so many different things had converged. Nuclear theory had come together to be able to predict what the behavior of a core-bound supernova should have been. Nuclear detectors that could detect neutrinos. And modern instruments on large telescopes in the southern hemisphere which could then track the supernova for year after year. In fact, we're still watching the thing with the Hubble Space Telescope. It's terrific. Now, why do we care? Now, explosions are kind of neat. Is this really fundamental? The answer is yeah. These things are very fundamental to understanding a lot of things. One of these is this principle of nucleosynthesis. Remember, the stars start out at 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, and a fraction of a percent of metals. Okay, I'm rounding up, so I've accidentally rounded up over 100%, but you get the idea. You start out with hydrogen, and you fuse it into helium. Then you go helium through beryllium to carbon and oxygen. Then you go from carbon and oxygen up to oxygen, neon, and magnesium, all the way up to the iron group elements. All of these begin to accumulate in the deep inner layers of the star. Now, even though the sun has turned approximately 5% of its hydrogen into helium, that helium is still locked down deep inside the core. It hasn't gotten to the surface. There's not more helium in the sun now, on the helium of the sun's surface now than there was when it first lit up 4.5 billion years ago. 
So even though it's forming those elements deep inside, they're not getting anywhere inside of a star like the sun. What you need to do is some way to turn the star inside out, to get its insides to the outside. And supernova explosions are the way to do this. First of all, you've got however many millions of years of nucleosynthesis building up everything to iron through all of those successive stages of fusion in the lifetime of a massive star. So you start by building up literally solar masses worth of metals all the way up to iron. The explosive nucleosynthesis that occurs is that shock wave rolls its way outwards through the inner hot portions of the envelope, actually make even more metals, oxygen, carbon, and so forth, during the few seconds and hours of that explosion rolling its way through the star. Eventually, the shock reaches the point of the star where it's too cool for fusion, and fusion just shuts off. But it makes lots of helium, lots of carbon, lots of oxygen, lots of a whole bunch of other stuff. Furthermore, during that explosion, neutrons come pouring out of the nucleus and coming out of the nexus of the explosion. Neutrons only last, have a half-life of about 13 minutes. But we've got more than 13 minutes to work with inside this explosion. Some of those neutrons get soaked up by iron. Well, now the fact that fusion to heavy elements takes energy doesn't matter because there's energy up the wazoo coming out of this explosion. And so we hit the iron peak here and then with neutrons begin to blast our way all the way up through the rest of the periodic table. It tops out at about Californium 254, right up here on element 98, 98 protons in the nucleus and 254 minus 98 neutrons. Everything above that, ES, FM, MD, MO, LR, all these funny heavy elements, those are made in, in particle accelerators. They're not naturally occurring. In fact, californium today is made in particle accelerators. Uranium is the last remaining natural element. So we go from pure hydrogen and helium, essentially, to filling in the entire periodic table of the elements. Now, you may remember during the first week, we talked about the atomic nature of matter, and I showed my sort of you know, late-night TV-style top 10 list of the most abundant elements. Hydrogen and helium are the raw materials out of, that came out of the Big Bang that formed the universe. Oxygen, oxygen, carbon, and neon, silicon, iron, magnesium, and sulfur are all the products of supernova explosions. They're the products of the nucleosynthesis that occurs deep in the interiors of massive stars. Nucleosynthesis means just what, it, what the name implies, the synthesis of heavy nuclei. And this occurs in the nuclear fusion reactions that occur deep down in the centers of stars. When those massive stars go supernova, they get literally turned inside out, except for the collapsing iron-nickel core at the very center that triggered the explosion in the first place. And we end up with those metals being turned out into the interstellar medium. This is extremely important to understanding where these elements happen. Because if we look at it, the universe is hydrogen and helium when it's born. But the oxygen that we breathe, the iron in our blood, those of you who may be wearing bits of gold jewelry or have silver amalgam fillings in your teeth. This piece of gold I wear on my finger, other than being a very nice gift from my wife, and I gave her one kind of looks a lot like it a couple of years ago, this did not form with the universe. This is a remnant of a massive star that destroyed itself long before the Earth even formed. The silicon in the ground, the oxygen we breathe, the nitrogen, everything we have that's heavier than hydrogen and helium on this Earth was once in the interior of a massive star and turned out into the interstellar medium in a massive supernova explosion and the solar system formed out of that material. 
that we live in a world surrounding a star rich in metals tells us we are not the first generation of stars in the universe. We, in fact, are probably the third, fourth, or fifth generation of stars. And we can look at the metal content of stars is due to the earlier generations that came before us and the massive supernovae that created those elements. So when you look around you at a heavy element, its atoms came from the interior of a supernova explosion. Now what happens to that envelope? Well, the envelope is enriched in metals. It blasts its way out. It moves out at 10,000 kilometers a second, and it produces a blast wave, which pours out into the interstellar medium, stirring up the interstellar gas, and is hot enough to shine for a few thousand years. That stirring up of interstellar gas has another factor. If it runs into a giant molecular cloud, it compresses it, causes it to fragment, and begins the formation of the next generation of stars, while at the same time polluting that material with more metals than it itself formed out of. So if we look out into the, into the galaxy, we see immense bubbles of hot gas. This is a, a beautiful nebula called Semis uh, 104. It's an expanding supernova from long ago. That material is mixing and pushing its way into the interstellar medium. We can even see a section of an old supernova remnant, still the scraps here in the constellation of Cygnus, a supernova that went off somewhere between 15 and 20,000 years ago. Metal and rich gas mixes with interstellar gas, goes into each successive generation of stars. The sun, the planets, and us all contain these metals because we're only 5 billion years and the universe is about 13 and a half. The solar system formed out of this gas-enriched material created in the fires of a previous generation of massive stars. To use an old phrase from another scientist, we are indeed made primarily of the dust of stars. See you all tomorrow.